two. Mic check, mic check. Good, good. Look, sounds good to me. I like it, like it. Need to get new batteries. I think I should get batteries also for the acoustic. You think we're okay? It's got a red light, so we'll see. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, let me just say a special welcome to you. Um, I know what it's like to visit a church for the first time, and it's absolutely terrifying. Anybody that's recently uh, gone to church, they're like, are they going to make me do anything goofy? Are they make me going to do anything weird? And the answer is no, we're not. Okay, we're not going to do anything crazy to you or make you feel not today. It's only later, Wes. That's right. Baptism. We're coming. Okay, we'll get to that. But what you could do to actually connect with the church is fill out the Connect card. Let us know what's going on in your life. Uh, you'll put that. There's a box in the back. It's an offering box. You can put your Connect card there. And that's one of the ways that we get to know you, know your family, know what's going on with you. It's also a place that you can put, if you're a regular attender or a member of this church, where you can say, here, pray for me this way. This is what's going on in my life. This is where I need prayer. Uh, this is what's happening. So that's important. You're joining us in a series that we're doing called Make Me Like. It's a unique sermon series, message series. I've never done a sermon series like it. I normally will work through a book of the Bible or have a topic that we're addressing. But in this series, we're looking actually at mentor-mentee relationships that are all throughout the Bible. And so as a teaching team, we were praying, we felt like it was really important for the church as a whole to begin to understand these relationships aren't new. They're all throughout the Bible. And we still need these kind of relationships today, relationships that are of depth. And so Today's message in particular may hit home for some of you. It could be very encouraging or it could be very discouraging. I'm not sure which yet. We'll wait and see how things go. But let me just give you some questions that might prep you for today's message. Have you ever been extremely frustrated with a family member? Ever been absolutely pissed off at them because you know what they should be doing in their life to make their life better, but they just won't do it? And maybe it's a person in your life or your family or it's a friend close to you that you're like, they should be there by now. They're the mature one. I'm the one that's less mature. And it's absolutely frustrating to watch them destroy their life and not get it. Has anybody ever been there? Maybe you're a person that you're excited about your faith, but you're confused about what the next step is and how that's supposed to work. And so that even makes it more frustrating when you look to someone that you think should have the answers and know how to get there, but they're just not quite there. That's what today's message is about. We're going to look at two particular characters and scriptures out of a book called Ruth. There's only two um, uh, books in the Bible actually named after women. Yay, women. This is your moment. Yay, power, right? Give it to us. Yay, women. Yeah. Yeah, Esther's the other one. Man, yeah, I knew you would know. Of course, John, you would know the other one. But Ruth and Esther, the two, they're actually named after women in the, in the uh, scriptures. And so it's pretty cool that we get to go through this one today and look at these two relationships. And you're going to see based on those questions that you just heard that both of these people are struggling along a continuum. And that continuum has to do with that. The one that should know what's going on but seems to be frustrated. And the one that's got a lot of zeal but is not sure what to do. Now, before we get there... Let me just tell you what we've been doing in this series, because this has been a fun series, Make Me Like. During this, season, this series, we've been asking people to take next steps in their faith. Today, you're going to see Katie in just a little while take her next step in baptism. Uh, Mardella, is, um, our campus of Mardella actually started their service at 10 today instead of 1030, because they're ending their service early, because they have a baptism, and they're trying to get up here at the tail end of this service so they can have their baptism, and you know because they don't have a baptistry, they're a portable church. So that's another baptism. There's four or five other baptisms actually kitted and ready. Some of those are very unique that God's doing. So these are people taking their next step 
in their Christian journey, in their faith. And that's one of the things that we said we wanted to focus on during this series is people in our gathering taking those next steps. We've seen 10 different people, and I think it's growing right now, join a life group or a small group, which is awesome. And I know that there's a brand new group that's being birthed very shortly that's actually connected to those in guest services. We have a brand new group that just launched for prayer that meets on Tuesdays. So that's been pretty cool. And then I told you one of the things we're also doing for, the, for those of you that are kind of part of this body is we're actually trying to replenish our emergency fund so that we can actually answer God's call when he shows up and does cool things. And I shared with you last week, God totally messed up my finances. Have you ever been there? When he told me in my personal life to double my generosity, and he told me all kinds of weird ways to do that. So my wife and I have been working through that. Missionally, we've been going and doing great things. We gave out 250 plus pounds of chicken last week. Did y'all know that to people? And I'm still hearing the buzz of what God did through that. And then this month, we'll be doing a trunk or treat. If you've never been a part of Grace's trunk or treat, it's the bomb. It's amazing. It's a lot of fun. And so we'll have about 700 people walk through the parking lot that we used to get, go say, here, here's some candy, and God loves you, okay? And it's a fun time to have. And I know that Wes right here, I put this in my notes ahead of time, it wasn't because I saw you, is going to be doing a haunted trail. And let me tell you what this guy's doing right down here. He's going to be raising money for the Boys and Girls Club in Laurel. And so that's a, this, these are some of the things that God is doing in different ways missionally around us. And there's more to come. We have a mission coming in November and one in December that's absolutely unique. That's why we did this series. It was to actually encourage our church to step out in these areas of faith so we could see God do something new. All right, now let's jump into Ruth and let's, let's dig into these two biblical characters. If you don't know anything about this book, let me give you some background. This book is only four chapters, okay? It's in the Old Testament. This is a book you can literally read in like one sitting very easily. The author technically is unknown, but by Jewish tradition, we believe it was a guy named Samuel. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bible, let me bring you up to speed. Samuel was a cool prophet. And if you don't know anything about this guy, he had a unique upbringing, didn't he, John? I know John already knows it. So he had a really cool mom named Hannah. And Hannah said, Lord, I can't get pregnant. This isn't happening. What's the deal? If you'll just give me a boy, you give me a kid, I will dedicate them to your service and ministry. And so this is this guy, Samuel. Samuel comes at the tail end of one of the things we've been talking about, which we just finished talking about Moses, and we talked about Joshua. And again, if you don't know anything about these guys, Joshua brought Israel into a horrible time. Moses brought them through a pretty good time. King came out of Egypt, established the law. Joshua brought them through and they got the land. But then if you don't know anything about this guy, he forgot to actually lay hands on and coach another person to take over his role. And so Israel went into a season called uh, the season of the judges. And if you've ever read about the judges, this is some of the goofiest stuff you'll ever read in scripture. You'll be like, gone. these people are messed up. And you're like, yeah, I can relate to that. Okay. That's what you read during the season of Judges. It's during the season of Judges that this book is written. And a lot of people think because traditionally Samuel wrote it about a thousand years before Jesus was born. When he wrote this and he talks about this real relationship of real people, he focused on it because he wanted us to see that even in the midst of the craziest, weirdest stuff that could happen in our government or our culture, God is still at work. And God's still at work within personal relationships. In this case, these particular two people. I love this. If you, don't, if you know me, you know, I like to read, read some commentaries. And I found this out of something called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I thought it was so good. I wanted to share it with you. This is what the Bible Commentary says, Knowledge Commentary says about the book of Ruth. It says, the book of Ruth gleams like a beautiful pearl against a jet black 
background. Background. So in other words, the person who's thinking about this book is saying, look, you look at all the junk that's happening in this culture in Israel, and this book, like a beautiful pearl, just stands out of God's goodness and how God is at work with people. So that's what's at the heart of this. Now let me give you a little bit more background because I can't read through all four chapters today, but you can later. Let me set it up for you. Here's how this book begins, and I'm going to translate uh, the language into English for you in a really unique way because a lot of times in Scripture, if you don't know this, Biblical language, especially names, have meaning, right? So you all know, like, when you name your kid, that there's actually meaning behind the name, right? Has anybody ever done that for you? Like, look up the actual names of your kids. They have a meaning behind their name, where that comes from. Same thing's true in the Bible. What's interesting about the launch of this book is when you learn the English names, when they get translated from Hebrew into English, it tells you everything you know about what's about to happen in this book. So let me, let me paraphrase for you how this book launches. In a time of famine, okay, so there's no bread, there's no, people were starving. This guy named God is my king, that's Elimelech. God is my king is married to this really neat lady named Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant. How you like that? Somebody names you pleasant. That probably ticks some of you ladies off, right? I'm not that pleasant. Okay, so, so God is my king is married to this gal named Pleasant. And they have two sons. Their sons' names, I'm not kidding, you can look this up later, are puny and wuss. Okay, these are the two sons' names. Now, I don't know why you would name your kid that, but that's what they name their kids. So God is my king with Pleasant, with two sons named Puny and Wuss. Leave Bethlehem, that's their hometown, which Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. So they leave the house of bread in a time of famine to find bread, where God has promised to bring bread, and they go to a place called Moab, and Moab means the house of incest. That's how this book starts, okay? So the author of this book is trying to tell you these people are not actually walking really good with God right now, and he set it up in a way that says it's probably not going to go well for them. The boys get there, and they're like, hey, there's some hot Moabites. We'll take those two gals. And so they get married. They get married, and then both the boys die, and so does the dad, leaving Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, one that we know by the book name, Ruth, and the other one, Orpah, which always makes me think of some kind of mammal that's in the water, but that's just my problem I'm working through, okay? So they're there 10 years for all this to happen, which is amazing. And the end of that, after all these guys die, all the dudes die on them, they're like, we've got no hope. We don't know what to do. Because if you don't know anything about the Middle Eastern culture, even today, but especially back then, a woman who was widowed or a woman without a husband was pretty much left destitute. They were going to starve and probably die. They had to beg for their food and everything because there was no idea back then of women working and being able to make a living separate from being married to a husband. So that's where they are. And they're like, let's split. So I think the women were smarter than the guys. That's normal, right? Don't elbow anybody. But they finally said, these jerks led us to the house of incest, and there's bread back in the house of, mm-hmm. So they're like, let's leave, and let's go back. Now, it's not like they just get in the car and drive. It's, it's a haul. It's a long haul. And as they start back, I think y'all women like to talk, right? Okay, I'm just making some assumptions here, Okay. I know the women around me like to talk, and the guys like to sit and watch, you know, football. So, so they're on their way back, and they're talking. There's no doubt about it. And all of a sudden, Naomi just gets completely absorbed 
into the non-hope that's there. She is just in despair. And she looks at her two daughter-in-laws, and she's like, y'all need to leave me. I am cursed by God. My life is horrible. You would be, you're not going to wait for me to have more boys and then marry them, so I can't really help you in this culture. You need to go back to the culture that you came from, and y'all need to find some husbands. That would be so much better for you than to stick with me because my life is messed up, and there's no hope for me. And so she convinces Orpah. She's like, okay, I get it. I'm gone. But Ruth, she could not convince. And Ruth sticks to her. And the two of these ladies then start heading their way back to Bethlehem. And so as you look at this trip back, here's the things I think that we can take from this mentor-mentee relationship. These are something, and you could take more out of this book. Read this book after we're done in church today. You will get so much more than what I'm going to give you today. But here's some of the things I think we could all pull from. Here's the first. Ruth and Naomi held different perspectives on their circumstances. They had completely different perspectives. They had completely different lenses when they looked at the situation. And we're just going to look at verse 1, uh, or yeah, chapter 1, verses 11 through 18, to give you a snapshot of this book so you can see how different their perspectives are. So look at these perspectives, starting with verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughter. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Verse 12, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have any uh, or another husband. If I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Now, these ladies are tight. They're weeping together, okay? At this, they wept again. Then Orpah, not the, not the marine animal, okay, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Then Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, and she stopped urging her. In the original language here, a lot of scholars think when she says this, and she says, the Lord deal with me ever so severely, the language is in such a way, it's a covenant. That she's making this big promise before God and before her sister, or in this case, her mother-in-law, but her sister in faith. And because of that, once she made that covenant union, once she made that covenant promise, that's when Ruth said, I know I'm not going to dissuade you. There's something spiritually deep that's happening inside of you. That's one of the reasons why we still do covenant unions in our church. There's something deeply connected to a promise before God and one another. That's why we do covenant marriage. We give a promise to God and one another. So that's one of the reasons why she couldn't be dissuaded. The other thing I see in this text, and I don't know if you've picked up on this, but have you ever met a person that's always half empty? The half empty glass person? And have you ever met the person that's always optimistic? They're the half full person? Oh my gosh, this is these two women. The one is not only half empty, I think she, the whole glass is gone. And then you've got Ruth that somehow in the midst of all this is like, it's all right, God's good and God's going to do something. And she's excited. 
When you look at that, it's incredible. You know that Naomi changes her name in this book. And she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which is bitter. So she's bitter based on what's going on in her life. You ever been there? Bitter based on your circumstances. Bitter based on what you think maybe God's allowed to happen in your life. This is where this woman is. One is the realist. One is the optimist. You ever been around those people? Because they're like oil and water, right? You ever been around people that are the realist and the optimist? We irritate the crap out of one another. Like, it's going to be good. God's got it. Well, how? Like, give me the details. Like, they're the detail people. And then there are people like, I don't know, but God's going to do it. And it's going to be all right. Just hang in there, right? And some of you, as I'm saying that, you're like, you relate to one or the other. And the other one irritates you. Like, no end. And that's where these two ladies are. What's fun in my life, I don't know if you've experienced that, but my wife and I are both. And this is one of the unique things about marriage. I hope your marriage, if you're married, is like this. When things are really good, we're both on the same page, right? When things get bad, I'm hoping one of us stays the optimist, okay? Because otherwise, it's like a plummet, right? You been there? If both of us are down at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, we got to go out with some friends because we need it, you know? But, but usually, we balance each other. Usually, when one of us is down, the other one is able to see a vision from God, and it, it brings the other up, and it brings them back together in great perspective. And that's what's happening in this moment. So my question to you as you think about this relationship is where are you right now? Are, are you at one of those places where you, you're not sure how it's all going to work out, but you know the faithfulness and goodness of God, and you're optimistic? Or are you one of those places where you're just like, gosh, I just, I'm not there. I can't see it. Just the darkness is so heavy in front of me and so heavy on me, I just cannot see the goodness of how God's going to make this happen. Here's, here's the good news. You're going to find someone just like in this text that's going to bring hope. In fact, here's the second thing I see with this relationship. You need one another to be successful. The optimist oh, needs the realist. The realist needs the optimist. And you see it with these two women. Even though they're so different, you're going to see their influence, their leadership on one another and the community around them. Look at this out of Ruth 2, just 2 through 3. And Ruth, the Moabitess, okay, that's where she came from, said to Naomi, this is her mother-in-law, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and she began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan Elimelech. That's that dude that said, God is my king. So in other words, he's in the same family as they are. Now, what's so cool about this, this is the perspective, I think, of Ruth. Ruth had the youth. She had the energy. Because when you went and gleaned a field, this was hard work. If you don't know anything about this, this uh, season, what people will do when they were harvesting their field is they would leave the edges of the field. And they would leave that for the poor. They would leave that for those that didn't have. So they could come along and work the field. And as they worked the field, then they would glean the field and they would take that back. This was something they'd been doing for a long time. It was one of the ways that the culture in their day provided for those that didn't have. But it was hard work, which means really Ruth was the only one that could do it because Naomi was advanced in years at this point based on the text. So she goes out there. The only way they're going to be able to eat is this young woman's there and she's going to fight and glean. She's going to make it happen. She's got that zeal that we need. You ever meet anybody that's just freshly come to know Jesus? <laughs> They're irritatingly obnoxious, but excited about their faith. Love that. 
Ever met someone that's been in their faith a long time, but they've kind of gotten bitter? Somehow they swallowed that bitter pill and life's got at them and they just don't see any hope and they can't get out there and do the work of ministry the way they used to. That's what you're seeing in this text. That's the application. And I love that this is happening in such a cool way. Ruth's doing the gleaning. It's also cool that she lands. She just so happens to land in her family's field. She didn't know it, but this woman of zeal and of faith lands at the perfect place for God to meet her and do something in her family. What an amazing idea, what's called God's providence, God's sovereignty. That God, even when you can't see it or know it, is working for you and ahead of you. So she gleans this field, and while she's there, if you know the rest of the story, she meets this dude named Boaz, who's a pretty cool dude. He's a military guy, and he's quite, made quite a, a name for himself. And he's also a guy with great compassion and great heart and great character. And he takes a liking to Ruth. He's like, that woman can work, and she looked good, right? So he takes a liking to Ruth. But Ruth doesn't know what to do. And then you come to this next text, which I love that we get to see both of these. So then you go to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now look at Naomi's perspective. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls that you've been, a kinsman of ours? In other words, he's family. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself. Put your best clothes on. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that, you're there, that you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her. Now think about this. Ruth has the zeal and the passion and the energy to save this family, but she does not understand the cultural dynamics of how to do it. Her mother-in-law, who's wore out and bitter and doesn't know, have the passion and zeal anymore, knows what the culture expects in this situation so that she can get a foothold into the family and capture the heart of Boaz. So she instructs her in that wisdom. So there's nothing inappropriate in this, by the way. All it was part of Jewish culture that said, hey, it was kind of like in our culture, you go, I kind of like you. You know what I mean? I'd like to get to know you better. Okay, that's, that's what's happening in this situation. And they would actually borrow the threshing floor. They didn't own it. So it was like when they were gleaning the field, they would like just have it for a season. And while he's in there in that season, she's like, make that known that you're interested in him. And he'll reciprocate that in a way that tells you he wants to marry you. And there's so much cool stuff in this text. Again, you should go back and read it because he's not actually allowed to marry her first. There's a family member who's in line first, and he has to deal with that. And that's a cool part of the story. But the part that I think is so great in this was they needed one another to be able to do life well. Are you a person that you're young, you're passionate You've got zeal and energy. Here's the thing. You need someone who has wisdom. You need someone that has wisdom. You need an older man or an older woman, usually the same gender is the way this should work, that's going to pour into you. That's going to be able in that moment when you have that passion, that zeal to move forward, can provide you with the proper wisdom. Are you a person with wisdom, but you've lost your zeal? 
you've lost that, mm, that drive just for life, you've got to hang out with a younger person. You've got to. One, you've got wisdom to, to give them. But number two, when you hang out with them, you will recapture their excitement. What I love about this text is you can see Naomi getting excited. The person who had no hope and everything was pessimistic, I'm cursed by God, is now going, oh, look what God did. You happen to land in the right field. You happen to get this guy, Boaz, who's got not only money, this dude's like rich, okay? We're marrying wealthy into the family. Like she's getting excited and she's like, God's going to redeem our whole family. And I'm gonna tell you the steps to get there. That's what's so beautiful about this book. The third thing is I, you cannot imagine, and they couldn't imagine at their time, what their role in the whole would be of God's plan what the role in the whole will be. A lot of times we're so focused on our little issue in life, right? Because we got them. Or where we are in our faith journey, we can't see the bigger role that's in the whole of what God is doing. So as you get to the end of this book, there's something in here that's like a nugget spiritually that you just can't miss in chapter four. Look at 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boom, okay? Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. It's funny, with puny and wuss, they couldn't get it done in 10 years. But Boaz, the old dude, got it done. Okay, just saying, just saying. Okay, it's a weird thing that you see there. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Someone to redeem your family's property is what was happening here in the Jewish faith. May he become famous throughout Israel, verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, why is this important? As you read scripture, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna encounter a phrase. It's called, from the root of Jesse. And when you see this phrase, what every biblical author that's writing in the Bible is saying is, this is the promised line. This is the line of royalty. This is the line where God's going to save the entire world. And that's why they're saying that. They're wanting you not to miss this. And then, of course, Jesse, the father of David, you may not know who that is. That's King David. King David became the, the, the well, not the first king, but the, the better king of the two. You had Saul, and then you had David. But David's the one that is the one that the line of Christ is supposed to come through to save all of the world. Now, think about this. A woman, completely dejected with no hope, experienced and wise, but was married to a knucklehead and had some knucklehead sons, okay? Some of y'all can relate to that, okay? And then a young woman was not a part of their culture, wasn't a part of their clan, wasn't a part of their religion. The Holy Spirit brings this woman into their family who has zeal and passion and is willing to work hard. And then God takes these two women to give you and I a picture of how salvation comes to everyone. It's not about what you know, and it's not just about being excited about it. It's about understanding how those things work together to point to one specific person. Through this line in the New Testament, we're told 
comes the person of Jesus, who, by the way, is born of a woman that people quite, don't quite get, don't really understand that he's been born of a virgin and comes through in a way that nobody really wants to connect to in that culture. And yet he rises up to become the ultimate king. And when he's the ultimate king and should receive all the glory and all the worship and all the honor because they've been waiting on him now from this book for a thousand years, and Isaiah prophesied 700 years before he shows up on the site, he shows up and he lays down his life for us. He says, I'm perfect and without sin. And because I'm there, I'm going to lay down my life that you might have life. And it goes all the way back to this one decision with Naomi and Ruth a thousand years before you could think about it. They had no idea their role in the whole of the salvation of all of the world. Jesus comes, dies a criminal's death on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And three days later, he is risen from the dead to show he has power over life and death. And the Christian church is formed out of faith in what he's done based on two women who would not give up. That's, that's the message of this book. And so this is the last thought I have for you as we get a transition. We need to be careful not to let our circumstances or our culture trump faith because it never does. Circumstances and culture never trump faith. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your cultural background is, no matter what you're going through or where you are, your faith is what will sustain you, and that's what will sustain these two women. So where are you today in your faith? Have you come to a place where you believe Jesus paid for your sin personally? And because of that, you want to live for him. This is the idea connected to, and we talk about this a lot as a church, but it's important to talk about it a lot. Every single one of us in this room have sinned. That means we've wronged people that we love and we've wronged God. We lived in ways that aren't godly ways and lived in ways that hurt one another. That's the concept of sin. Jesus came to atone for and pay for that sin when he died on the cross. And those that put their hope and their belief and their trust only in him are forgiven of every sin, which leaves you free and clear before God. Which then, the response to that is, man, I just want to live for him because he has set me free from the penalty of sin. That's the good news if you've never heard it, the gospel of what Jesus has done. And so if you've never done that, I'm going to pray with you in a second. And then I'm going to ask Kevin to come up. And Kevin's going to lead us after we pray to renew our faith. Or for some of you to put your faith for the first time in Christ, he's going to lead us in a guided response of prayer through a proverb that will help us really connect today's message even deeper. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for each and every person here. They're not here by accident, but by design. God, all of us are dealing with something. Either something our culture has brought into play or maybe something our circumstances have brought into our lives. And sometimes we just can't untangle the mess. We can't figure it out. And the, the pain of sin and death comes into our lives from others and also from us. And no matter how hard we try 
to do things a certain way. It always comes up short. It just never lasts long enough or never fixes the problem as a whole, and it leaves us dejected and in despair, hurting people in need of a Savior. So, Lord, we admit our sin before you today. Not to love our spouse the way they should be loved. Our sin not to live based on your understanding of the way this world was created. We fall so short from your standard. But you lovingly bridge that gap in the person of Jesus who came at the perfect moment in time. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He never sinned in thought or in deed. And if anyone deserved heaven based on their own merit, it was Jesus. But instead of demanding heaven, he gave it up so that we might have it. He died a criminal's death to pay for our sin. Your, your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And he shed his blood for our forgiveness. Father, we put our hope and our trust and our belief in him alone not in a denomination, not in a, even a system of thought, Lord, but in a person, the person of Jesus. And it's because of what Jesus has done that I am forgiven. My sins are wiped clean. And I'm so grateful. And out of my gratitude, I just want to live for you now. Father, for those that prayed that prayer today, let the Holy Spirit flood inside of them and in their heart and begin to change them and continue to change us, those of us that are trying to follow you and let you have your way in our lives. Lord, we commit our lives to you free and clear and in faith that one day we will see you face to face. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into this guided time of prayer. And I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 throughout this. Verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. So I want us to pray and reflect on God's word and let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind a word, one of his words that he gave you this week. And thank him for that word. Let's pray.
verse 3 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Heavenly Father, as I reflect on my week and life lately, I want to bring you a win to mind. Some way that you showed up in my life this week and how you showed your love for me. So let's pray about that win that came to you. you're praying on that win, ask him why he showed up in that particular area and listen for his small voice and ask him to reveal himself in your devotions this week. Verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Lord, search me and see if there's an area where I'm wrestling with you or doubting you. Create within me a heart of trust. Confess to the Lord if there's an area where you've struggled to trust him. And now, ask him to show up in that area of your life in a way that you can see and understand that your life aligns with his will. Amen.